for our discussion today, I am joined by Encio von Feil, a capital preservation specialist at Financial Shield. Good morning, Encio. Good morning, Caroline. And good morning to Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Good morning, Carlos. Good morning. Good morning to you both. Now, Carlos, we had some signs of stabilisation in China's industrial profits data this week. But how important will be the PMI data that we're expecting for, for the region? All right. That's an excellent question. I think investors like to look at PMI data because it's a preliminary indicator of um, manufacturing conditions. And we are expecting that to have stabilised somewhat. But in terms of what the PMI entails for profits... Um, it's interesting to look at um, the price of factory goods. So there's a, a output price component in the PMI number, and that is very um, strongly correlated with PPI prices uh, that then translate into an increase in industrial profit. So hopefully what we will see is a mild recovery over the board for the manufacturing PMI, um, you know, in line with what we have been seeing in August with more stimulus, more credit. Um, but then this specific component should have rebounded more strongly, pointing to um, you know, at least uh, light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to industrial profits for manufacturing companies in China, because they have improved. But as you mentioned, they're still very negative year to date. Now, you mentioned stimulus there. Uh, what kind of form might that be taking? Mm -hmm. There are two key balance sheets that we haven't um, seen the government deploy yet. Um, PBOC's balance sheet. Um, so we do expect that in the fourth quarter of this year, they, they will do balance sheet expansion. Central government balance sheet is another one. Um, I think they're withholding some firepower to see what happens with, uh, you know, U.S. yields remaining higher for longer um, and, uh, and the housing sector in China. But that is another tool that we think they will deploy. And the last one is uh, further monetary policy stimulus. So we are expecting one more rate cut and at least 50 points in additional uh, reserve requirement ratio cuts in the fourth quarter of this year. So hopefully that should um, sustain that uh, recovery that we are starting to see. NCO, do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I get back to my very basic point that I think that's, and I'm sure that Carlos would agree, that the unless until, as long as the government keeps on making the market serve its own ends, I think you're going to find a lot of private sector participation very, very hesitant, very reticent, because people don't quite know what they're getting into when they invest in China. So the private sector actually accounts for about 80% of all employment, roughly, and about, say, the same thing with investment. And those are very important, very hefty numbers. So unless the government decides that it wants to let the private sector get on with its job of creating jobs, I think any stimulus, in my mind, is going to be very much tinkering at the edges. Okay, let's move on to relations with the US. Now, NCO, you suggested that you don't think China is decoupling. We keep hearing a lot about decoupling, but where do you stand on it then? Well, China is recoupling by going into Southeast Asia, and Carlos and I were discussing this just before the show here, that the direct investment flows of China, and Carlos should really do this for us, into Southeast Asia have been quite strong because they have to follow where the American companies and the European companies are going. So I think it's, it's I'm always a little bit reticent with this either or thinking I'm much more of an and and guy. And I think you've got less investment in China and more Chinese investment into Southeast Asia. And I think that's going to give the markets there quite a good boost and be a strong buy on the Southeast Asian markets for investors. Carlos, anything you'd like to add there that NCO didn't add? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think um, 
the the right way to think about it is uh, you know there's a global vested interest that includes China and the US in building resilience across supply chains um, a lot of those supply chains concentrated in China during covid and what we are seeing now is an unraveling of that so of course FDI into China is very negative and FDI into ASEAN uh, countries is very positive um, and although um, you know western hemisphere players uh, like uh, the US and Japan um, are still the main investors in terms of stocks in the region when you look at flows over 50% of the flows um, into ASEAN in terms of foreign direct investment are coming from China so what we are seeing here is more of a of a de-risking strategy rather than a complete decoupling um, and China will still play a role further upstream Karen, I think there's one other point that I just want to make to add to this, that when companies invest in China, yes, it is to export to America, but the key reason, based on my years of decades ago, research of decades ago, is that they were really going into China to tap the Chinese market itself, to sell cars in China, to sell Coke in China. And so one must not lose sight of that. What the Chinese are doing by going into Southeast Asia is to help on the export side of the equation. But I don't think that the foreign direct investment firms, but Carlos can please correct me, into China are totally going to dry up on the longer term because there's that market is still a huge market of many, many billions of consumers. So looking at the relationship between China and the US, where would you say the real action there is? Well, having been in this game for about 15 years myself from the 80s and early 90s, I was always backstage. That's where the selling is. The yelling is going on front stage and the selling is going backstage. The selling, what I mean by that is the doing of deals, the actual quite hard-nosed commercial talking about how we can solve problems. So you get this, of course, in the election year run-up, all of these people yelling on the front stage how bad China is. Nobody would get anywhere by saying that China is good in America. Probably also the same in China versus America. But backstage, I think that there are probably some fairly decent discussions going on in the selling bit of the equation. Carlos, your thoughts there? I, I, I think that we are entering a phase where p potentially bilateral relations might improve somewhat. It's always ahead of the election that you have a, a, a slight thaw. Um, the risk uh, for me is uh, that depending on who wins the election, first year is always domestically oriented and second year they pivot towards the external sector. So um, the question for investors is, uh, you know, what will the key so the target be um, during the second term, the second year of the next administration. And I, I believe that probably um, they will look at uh, China's role in exports of dual technology to Russia, for example, um, and sort of which types of companies are involved there. I think that is kind of where things are heading um, more so than on the, um, of course, banning um, investment into Chinese tech companies by U.S. Uh, economic agents. That is something that is already underway. Um, but I think uh, the next leg will be on the on the export front of those of those types of goods. Okay, let's take a deeper dive into the the U.S. economy. We've heard a lot this week about higher for longer from from the Fed. Carlos, how do you think that's going to move markets going forwards? In fact, we've revised our target for the U.S. ten-year yield up to uh, four point five to five percent. But clearly, with the figures today, we're almost at the top of that range. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's additional further upside risks to that five percent number. Um, we are seeing surprising resilience in the U.S. economy. Um, um, and of course, the Fed is uh, no longer expecting a soft landing scenario next year. A dot plot has been revised, um, meaning that uh, there will be fewer rate uh, cuts next uh, year if there will be 
rate cuts at all, may I say. Um, and so that is inevitably going to push uh, the 10-year yield uh, up more. Um, that translates into some possible risks um, for both uh, highly valued uh, tech stocks in the U.S., not the tech market as a whole, because if you exclude the magnific Magnificent Seven, so the seven key tech stocks, valuations in the U.S. are actually not that expensive. Um, but for these stocks, of course, it poses some risks. And whenever you have uh, U.S. yields rising, you have outflows from emerging markets, including Asia. So we are sort of gearing up to another bumpy six months or so ahead of us um, in case yields do uh, keep creeping up on the back of strong economic activity in the U.S. Enzio, what are your thoughts on the, the Fed's fight against inflation? Well, it's a little bit like they're, they're trying to repair a car, a, a car using knitting needles. <laughs> I, I really think that the, the, the toolbox is very much to fight demand-driven inflation by tightening monetarily, which makes a lot of sense. But the problem is that the sun doesn't really care where the U.S. demand is going. The weather doesn't care where U.S. demand is going. And so to fight structural inflation forces like the weather, a.k.a. food shortages, OPEC oil politics by using interest rates in America is totally ineffectual. I may as well be speaking Swazi with, with Carlos and he can answer me in Spanish. We, we just wouldn't communicate at all. And so I think that's a key problem. The other one is they have not publicized enough that the tightening in America actually only began some months earlier this year, in mm -hmm. my mind. I think that's when they began, please correct me, Carlos, but that's how I understood the data that that's since, since then they've been actually removing, shrinking the balance sheet. Um, and so I think that you're going to find the tightening going on, the actual physical tightening of money, the excess demand for money in the context of our economic block. I think that's going to go on for quite some time. And that's the market is basically just having to accept reality that rates are higher for longer, money's going to be tighter for longer, and that's not a pretty market story. Coming closer to home, in the currencies uh, news there today, the yen is very, very close to that psychologically important 150 to the, the dollar mark. Uh, Carlos, do you think intervention is, is likely and how hard is this hurting or impacting the country's economy? All right. So in a nutshell, Bank of Japan, they do not wish to move on monetary policy if they don't if they have the choice. Um, remember that um, the cost of debt service in Japan, government debt service, that is, is approximately 5% of GDP. And with every percentage increase in 10 year yields, that cost goes up a quarter of a percentage point. So they have a vested interest in uh, continuing to monetize. Ministry of Finance debt, and of course the ranks of BOJ are then packed with ex-Ministry of Finance guys. Um, so the Bank of Japan's um, end game is to continue to deliver ultra-accommodative monetary policy. However, the Bank of Japan is very concerned about cyclical short-term pressures that might nudge it into changing yield curve control. And that is, I think, what we are seeing, and that's what's pushing the yen towards 150. Um, we expect intervention at levels around 152. And of course, if you have a combination of, you know, uh, higher rates for longer in the US, uh, pushing US dollar up, uh, putting depreciatory pressures on the Japanese currency, and of course, this whole energy dimension, potentially leading to higher cost put inflation in Japan in the fourth quarter. Those conditions entail that Bank of Japan might have no choice but to move on yield curve control in December. But that doesn't mean that this time is different. That only means Bank of Japan is reacting to short-term cyclical pressures. NCO, anything to add? Not really. I think that the the it's going to be very much the higher rates just making the 
the daughter more attractive. It's as simple as that. Um, and I think, I don't know, Carlos, what's your house view on the Rimimbi? What, where do you think it's headed? Because that's, that's important for our readers, our listeners. Of course, the, this US dollar view is, is impacting everyone in Asia. Yeah. Um, Japan is, in fact, the worst performer with uh, minus 11% year to date. Uh, Rimimbi is only minus 5%, so it's a bit of a dichotomy. Relative to the US dollar, Rimimbi is, is, has depreciated, but relative to the other currencies in the basket, it's too strong. So we um, expect that there will be sustained depreciatory pressures on the currency. We've seen that line in the sand sort of being pushed uh, back mm-hmm. to 7.35 from 7.3. Mm-hmm. 7.35 is a level that hasn't been reached since 2007. So PBOC is in a similar sort of boat as BOJ. They're really being pushed by exogenous factors and they're reacting to that. Um, and so we do expect that that might continue. Um, you might see a shift in the line to 7.4, but no more than that. Uh, anything um, larger than that would entail outflow risks and a regime change. But unfortunately, with the uh, narrative in the US, they, they, they will remain under pressure. And that then implies really that you're going to get more Im- imported inflation in the non-US economies, which means that their rates will also have to start rising at some point, not, not imminently, because the economic time is very different in China to America. Mm-hmm. Great, great. I think we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much for joining me today, gentlemen. That was NCO von Feil, who is a capital preservation specialist at Financial Shield, and Carlos Casanova, senior Asia economist at UBP.